Okay. Hymns of Grace, number 11. All creatures of our God and King. I don't think we've sung this here. I don't think it's in the Trinity hymnal, is it? I don't think it is. So, but boy, this is an old hymn that I remember singing as a little kid, too. I love these old hymns. Yep. Yeah. Please stand with me. Let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for bringing us here together. Thank you for a time where we can praise your name. Hallelujah. Your name is mighty in all the earth. Lord, be with us together. Be with us as we learn together. Uh, teach us your word. May we be sanctified in your truth. Help us to understand your word. Open our eyes to your word. Help us to see new things in your word. Help us to study and to be approved by you as workmen who are not ashamed. Thank you, Lord, for all that you give us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated.
Okay, so we're going to start out uh, reviewing some of the things we covered before, and then uh, we're going to we'll get as far as we can. If you notice, your handout is two-sided. Basically, the first side is stuff we covered before that I'll try to cover again briefly, and then the second side is new stuff. Um, we'll get as far as we get. I have way more here than I can possibly cover in one lesson, and then next week I won't. I will be here. But I'll be in Wisconsin for a few days up until, I won't get back till late Saturday night. And so I'm not going to try to teach or prepare long ahead. And then, and in case something happens and I don't make it back in time, I won't, so I'm not going to be teaching next week, but I'll be teaching the following week. So whatever we don't get covered, we'll get the following week. I have more uh, stuff to cover than what's on here, too. So we've got a few lessons after that. But um, you got a good foundation. Uh, last week, and so we'll start um, on biblical symbolism. Um, so one of the things right after last week when I talked about all the errors to avoid and people who allegorize everything, they turn everything to a symbol, um, Cliff says, hey, you didn't cover all the people who claim to be strictly literal, and he kind of beat me to the punch. He didn't know the very first thing on this week was to talk about people who claim to have everything being completely literal. So the point here is, is that every good Bible scholar claims to interpret literally. Many claim that they're more literal than others. Some people claim that they're, and they're adamant about it, that their interpretation is only literal. Right? Well, is that true? Well, no, not really. Nobody is strictly literal. And um, J.A. Alexander says, to assert without express authority that prophecy must always be or exclusively one or the other being literal or symbolic is as foolish it was, would be to assert that the same thing of, the whole, of a whole conversation of an individual throughout his lifetime, or human speech in general. So the point he's making here is that we use expressions of speech in everyday language. We use them all the time. We don't even realize when we're doing it because they're so common. Okay? Like I had mentioned some last week about farming. Somebody might say, see a, a guy who just buys a new car and say, oh, he's living high in the hog. And nobody would think anybody of it. Everybody knows what that means, right? So we use these figures of speech in everyday language. If I, if I, you know, if we showed up for work day and we said, oh, we got to get busy, let's make hay while the sun still shines, we, everybody would know what that means for the most part, right? These are things we understand. They're figurative language. We use them in everyday speech, and we know what they mean. The tricky thing is, is these things show up in Scripture. And then what do we do with them then? Um, but the... The principle here is that we use them like we would use them in everyday speech. So when we run into these things in Scripture, we interpret them like we would interpret things that are used in everyday speech. Okay? So the fact is all interpreters are liberal, literal on some points and figurative on others. So that brings up the question, when is God's word to be taken literally and when is it to be interpreted figuratively? Okay? So, as noted we, in the previous section, what we covered before, the first thing you should always do when studying Scripture is look for the literal meaning, not some mystical or hidden code or secret interpretation. Okay? Not everything in Scripture is symbolic. We look for the symbolic meaning only after we've looked for the literal meaning in the passage. Some portions of Scripture are very literal. Okay? You can't take the book of Romans and make it symbolic. It won't make any sense. Right? So other things that are literal are historical events, theological propositions. There's didactic instructions, geneal genealogical records. Okay? 
Those passages are literal. They're meant to be taken strictly literally. Okay? To attempt to make them symbolic would destroy God's meaning of them. Okay? But there are other portions of Scripture that are very poetic, such as the Psalms, Song of Solomon, and much of the prophets. To make those strictly literal would also destroy those. And we're going to look at those today. Okay? Um, hopefully, well, hopefully if I get there. <laughs> to, ins- to, to interpret Scripture literally, we must recognize there are different literary styles and interpret them accordingly. So figures of speech, we interpret as figures of speech. Symbols, we look at them as symbolically. And so we're going to start looking at how we tell the difference between the two. Okay? So there are types of figurative language. I list five here. Um, I could have included more, like when Paul is being facetious. It's not exactly symbolic, but you can't take it literally, right? If you take, when Paul is being facetious in, in his books, if, if you take that literally, he's saying exactly the opposite of what he's meaning. You can't take that strictly literally. It won't make any sense, right? Um, but here's some figurative language. There are parables. You guys, I don't really need to cover parables. I listed the parable of the sower here in your notes, um, right? The sower went out to sow a seed, and as he sowed, some fell on the road, and it was trampled. Some fell in the rocky soil. You understand the parable, right? I don't think I need to go into that in too much detail. Okay. Next figurative type of figurative language is hyperbole. Okay. Hyperbole. So a hyperbole is obvious and intentional exaggeration, right? Um, we covered, pastor covered this recently. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye but do not notice that log in your own eye, right? Obviously, that's not literal. You can't stick a log in somebody's eye, right? It means something. It means something other than what it takes if you take that literally. You can't take it literally. It doesn't make any sense, right? Matthew 23:14 is the last one on your list. You blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. It's kind of funny to think about that literally, right? I mean, nobody can swallow a camel. No matter how much ketchup you put on it, it won't go down, right? So, okay, simile is the next one. Simile is where two unlike things are compared, okay? Isaiah 11 is the first one I have on there here. I'll read it to you. As the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like an ox. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the war, full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The simile there is at the end, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Two unlike things are being compared, right? The knowledge of the Lord on the earth is being compared to waters covering the sea. Two very unlike things, but they're being compared to get a picture in your mind of what's what's being described, right? So a simile is two unlike things that are compared. Uh, I'll cover Matthew 7, 26-27. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does not act on them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and slammed against that house and it fell. And great was its fall. So the two unlike things being compared there are the words of Jesus and somebody who doesn't act on them and a foolish man who built his house in the sand, right? This passage isn't about people who build their houses on the sand, right? What's the passage about? It's about people who don't hear Jesus' words and act on them, okay? That's simile. Next one is metaphor. Metaphor is where a word or phrase that usually designates one thing is used to describe another, okay? Uh, Hebrews 12 
you know this verse. This is something <coughs> very familiar. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and all. For our God is a consuming fire. So there's the metaphor there at the end. Our God is a consuming fire. Okay? So a metaphor is where you say something is something else, something that's different. Okay? Our God is a consuming fire. The interesting thing about this one is that it could be more literal than what a metaphor usually is because God has appeared many times as fire, right? You think of the Old Testament, Moses, they were led by a pillar of fire. The burning bush, God appeared as fire. But it's also taken metaphorically, right? God is a consuming fire. Um, Psalm 18, the Lord is my rock and my fortress, my deliverer, right? Is the Lord literally a rock? Well, no, right? But we know what a rock is. We understand what that is, so we know what this means when it says the Lord is my rock. My God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, right? Um, there's other things to look at here besides just the metaphor. There's the metaphor, God, my rock, my shield. What does it mean that God is my shield? Well, we know what a shield is, right? And that's why this metaphor makes sense. Um, or the horn of my salvation. I think we covered that last time. Do we know what a horn of salvation is? It's, okay, if you understand what a literal horn is, then this starts to make sense, right? Okay, what's a horn? It's not talking about a horn were um, like a trumpet. It's talking about a horn on a cow or a bull, right? What's the horns for? Here we're back to farming stuff. How do I always get back to farming stuff? What's the horn on a bull for? What's he use it for? Anybody know? Defense. Cattle have horns as defense against predators or, well, on my farm, it's against bigger cows. <laughs> Smaller cows with horns win. Okay. It's defense, right? So what's it mean by the horn of my salvation? It's defense or strength. Horns are used as a symbol of strength in Scripture. Right? This is where... This is where the animal gets his strength through his horns. He's using them as defense. So it's, sometimes this is translated my shield and the strength of my salvation. But here we have a symbol. You have to know something about the symbol before it starts to make sense. More metaphors. John 10. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go, out, go in and out and find pasture. Jesus says, I am the door. Obviously, so there's... there's People who say they claim to take Scripture literally at all points. Well, that doesn't make sense if when Jesus says, I am the door. You can't take that strictly literally. Nobody can. It doesn't make any sense. Okay? John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the vine dresser. There's more metaphors. Okay? So there's the first four. Um, the next type of figurative language is an idiom. An idiom is a little different. So idioms are like what the phrases I used earlier um, about living high in the hog or making hay while the sun shines. Those are idioms. And those are used in Scripture. Now the tricky thing about those is when you run into them in Scripture, if you try to take a literal translation, like if you try to take each Greek word and translate it into an English word, it's not going to make any sense. Okay? And the example I've given before is 1 Peter 1.13 where it says, Gird up your loins. Okay, if you try to take that, gird up your loins, is literally the way it's literally translated, and you 
translated in English literally, it doesn't make any sense. Nobody here really knows, or most people in the English language, they don't know what gird up your loins means, right? So like I explained, if you weren't here last week, what I explained that means is in the Old Testament, they wore robes, long tunics. They went all the way down to the ground. If you needed to do something like work hard or fight in battle or run, you took your tunic and you tied it up around your waist. You girded it up around your waist. And that is an idiom that means preparing for action or preparing for battle. So girding up the loins of your mind means preparing your minds for battle. It's also used, that same idiom is used in Job. And Job is scolded by God. And God tells Job when he's about to tell him the truth and where he's been wrong. God scolds Job and tells Job, Gird up the loins, gird up your loins like a man. He's basically telling him, I'm about to beat you up. You better be prepared for it. You know, he's going to, and what it was is where Job was wrong, God was coming after him to correct him. And he says, you better be prepared for it. And the expression he uses is, gird up your loins like a man. Tells him it twice in the book of Job. Um, So some of the meaning of an idiom is usually lost in translation. And it's hard for us to look at these idioms that are used in Scripture and know exactly what they mean because they're cultural. Just like other idioms that we use in everyday speech. Okay, now to interpreting symbolism here, the bottom section on your notes. So most of the more prophetic passages, such as Zechariah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah, or Revelation, contain numerous symbols that must be studied carefully to see the literal truth they are conveying. Hopefully, if I get there, I'm moving pretty fast right now. We're going to get to passages, and that's what we're going to start doing. We're going to look at symbolic passages in the New Testament, and we're going to start to determine their meaning little by little. Okay? Without properly understanding the meaning of the symbols, you'll completely miss the point of the passage. You have to know what the symbol means, just like horn of my salvation and the other things. right? God is my rock. We understand what a rock is, so that makes sense. But when we get to Scripture, sometimes there are symbols that are used we don't understand what they mean, just like horn of my salvation. And we have to know something about the symbol before we'll know what's being symbolized. Okay? Remember, if you don't have the correct meaning of Scripture, you don't have the Scripture. Our goal in Bible studies determine the meaning that God intended. Sometimes symbolism is hard to interpret, but by studying the historical setting and or looking at similar symbols that appear in other places in Scripture, you can discern their meaning. It's hard work, but it can be done. Much of the figurative prophetic language of the New Testament uses the same symbols as the prophetic language of the Old Testament. I say that over and over and over again because the times when I've seen Bible commentators get symbols wrong It's because they neglected to use the symbol like it was used in the Old Testament in the New Testament. You see a symbol in the New Testament, you don't understand what it means? Get out your Bible app and do a search or get out a concordance and look and figure out where that symbol was used. Where was that phrase used in the Old Testament? And oftentimes it will be clearly understood what it's being mean in the New Testament by simply looking it up in the Old Testament. We're going to do that today. Remember, the Jews that the New Testament was written to would immediately understand the symbols that were being employed because the Jews of the Old Testament were very proficient in the smallest details of the Old Testament. To determine the meaning of a New Testament symbol, just look it up in the Old Testament. Many times the meaning becomes immediately clear. 
So here's some basic guidelines for interpreting symbolism. I gave you five here. So first one is symbols are not abstract or random. All I mean by this is you can't make a symbol mean whatever the heck it is you want it to mean. God has an intended use for these symbols. Our goal is to figure out what God's meaning is, not whatever you want it to mean. People do this all the time. It drives me nuts. They make symbols up, and they make it mean whatever they want it to mean. Or they make it might make it a symbol look like something that would be a modern use of that term and not what was used by God. Okay, we need to look at Scripture. Scripture interprets Scripture. Um, here, I'll give you an example here. One of the guys that I look at that interpreted symbols really well, his name was David Chilton. He wrote a few books on eschatology. And this is what he says. I'll read this to you. He says, The book of Revelation describes a woman clothed with the sun standing on the moon and laboring in childbirth while a dragon hovers nearby to devour her child. A speculative interpreter might first turn to the news of the latest genetic experiments to determine whether a woman's size and composition can be changed for her to wear the sun. You might also check to see if the Loch Ness Monster has surfaced recently, and that's the dragon. Right? It doesn't make any sense. Okay. So he says a Bible interpreter, on the other hand, would begin to ask questions. This is the important part. Where in the Bible does this imagery come from? Where does, this Bible, where does the Bible speak of a woman in labor? And what is the significance of those contexts? Where does the Bible speak of a dragon? Where does the Bible speak of someone trying to murder an infant? If we are going to understand the message of, this, of the Bible passage, we must acquire the habit of asking questions like this. Right? Okay? I'm not going to cover that in detail, that passage in Revelation, though that would be kind of fun. Um, like the question, where does the Bible speak of someone trying to murder an infant? Can you think of any? I'll ask you this. Off the top of your head, can you think of, I can think of two really quickly. Jesus and Jared, or Jesus, Jesus, sorry, Jesus and Herod. Is another one? Think Old Testament. Think Egypt. Moses, right? Right? What were both those men? Deliverers. Okay, so here we're thinking, so here we're talking about Somebody trying to murder an infant, right? It tells you something about the passage. All you got to do is think and ask questions like this. And a lot of times, we've heard these stories of Moses, an infant, and the burning bush, and Pharaoh, and the ten plagues. We've heard these how many times? Over and over and over again, right? But we get to a passage like Revelation, and you read about somebody trying to murder an infant. It's obvious symbolic language. But we don't even bother to think about that. Uh, like when I read a, one of the passages in Revelation, and there was trumpets being blown by messengers from God, right? And we didn't even think, most people don't even, even think to think about Jericho. Trumpets being blown, walls falling down. But we know that story so well. How can we don't think of that? It's just we've got to learn to do that. When you see this symbol, think about where those same things pop up in the Old Testament. Okay. Symbolism is not a code. Okay? The Bible was not written a code that when you crack it, you can immediately understand all the symbols. Biblical symbolism is not the kind of puzzle some people make it, want to make it out to be. It's helpful to think of symbolism 
a set of patterns, associations, or ideas. Okay, this is important. Ken Gentry writes, um, the Bible must be approached with holy reverence for God and a fearful appreciation of its own majesty and grandeur. Scripture is not a cold mathematical formula that may be scientifically worked out. It is the living word of God to man concerning the plan of redemption. Okay? So take the symbol of leaven, for example. In Matthew 6.16, Jesus says, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What does he mean by leaven there? The symbol he's using is leaven. What does he mean by leaven when he says, Watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees? What's he talking about? Right, he's talking about their false teaching here, right? And it spreads. So here, the leaven is used to describe the false teaching of the Jewish leaders. So, But what that doesn't mean is that wherever you see the term leaven in Scripture, you can immediately assume that the leaven means false teaching. The principle here by leaven is it's something that's mixed in very small amounts, but spreads quickly throughout the whole. Okay, so leaven can be a lot of different things. But whenever it's used, that's the principle that's being used. Leaven is being added in a small amount, but it spreads quickly. Okay? In Luke 13, Jesus says, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three packs of flour until it was all leavened. So here we have leaven symbolizing two opposite things, the teaching of the Pharisees and the kingdom of God. So the same symbol can have more than one reference. Okay, this is kind of the idea with leaven. Okay, take for example, if I said White House, what does that mean? Well, it could mean the White House in Washington, D.C., right? By the White House. It could mean the house next door that's painted white. It could mean Dan White's house. Either way, I literally mean the White House. Each time I say the White House, I literally mean White House. Well, which... Which one do I mean? Which one am I talking about? That's what we've got to figure out in Scripture. When you see a symbol like that, what is it being talked about? Okay. Symbolism relies on the literal, and I covered this a little already. Okay. The reason we know why, what the Lord is my rock and the Lord is my fortress means is because we have an understanding of what a rock is. We have an understanding of a fortress. So if you come across a symbol and you don't understand exactly what it is, it's helpful to look it up. Okay. The symbol is merely a surrogate for something else. And what we want is the real thing, what's intended by it, not the symbol itself. Symbolism is progressive. Okay? Symbolism is progressive. The Bible uses many symbols, and most of them are used many times over. The meaning of these symbols is also is often developed throughout Scripture. As you work your way through Scripture, you'll notice that each time a symbol is used, there is a new or recurring associative concept either added to or clarifying the meaning of a symbol. Okay? What I mean by this is, so let's go, if you looked, at, if you looked in Genesis, we won't go there now, um, and you look up in the earliest chapters of Genesis, there's things like water, earth, light, darkness, gardens, seeds, fruit, serpents. These symbols are carried from the first chapter of Genesis all the way through Revelation, right? The serpent shows up, Genesis 3. And I just read to you about a serpent watching a woman giving birth 
Here we have the serpent again. That idea of the serpent is developed throughout the whole of Scripture. You can look through Scripture and look up all the places where the serpent shows up. And it gives you an idea of what the serpent is. And each time, in each spot, you learn more about what the serpent is doing. Okay? So symbolism can be progressive. A symbol starts up in the beginning of the Bible, and it continues through the end. And the last one is symbolism is not isolated. Okay? Symbols don't stand alone. The symbolism of a passage can't be divorced from the passage. Like we've said before, a text without a context is a pretext. So a symbol taken out of context will lack its intended meaning. Okay? We interpret symbolism paying close attention to the context to try to determine how the symbol fits in the literal narrative, the theological discourse, the didactic instruction, or even the whole of redemptive history. Okay? The majority of times when I've seen symbolism and things get got wrong, when they get it wrong, it's because they neglect the context. We went through um, the widow's might in detail, and the reason so many people get that wrong is because they ignore the context. We're going to hear in a, in a minute, we're going to go to Matthew 24. The reason why most people get that wrong is they forget the context. And we'll look at that in a minute. David Chilton says the mark of a good Bible teacher is that he's constantly asking questions. Why is this story being told in this particular way? Why is this particular word or phrase repeated several times? Why does, what does this story have in common with other stories? How is it different? Why does the text draw to our, our attention to some unimportant detail? How do minor incidents fit into this argument of the book as a whole? What literary, literary devices are being used? What forms of symbolism? Okay, and there's a list of questions. Those are questions we need to ask when you're looking at symbolism. Okay? So now we're going to start to look at different passages. I went through Jude in detail before. In fact, I think I took a whole lesson the last time to look at the book of Jude. And we looked at all the symbolism in the book of Jude. So I'm not going to go over it again in detail. Here, I'll just give you Jude. Jude 11 says, Woe to them, for they have gone the way of Cain, and for pay they have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And verse 12, These men are hidden reefs in your love feasts. They feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water. And it goes on. Um, what I want you to notice here is that it says, the first, the first part of the, verse 11 says, For they have gone the way of Cain. They have rushed headlong into the era of Balaam and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Here he's describing things that happened in the Old Testament, stories that we would know, stories that the people he was talking to would know, to describe things that were going on immediately. Okay, The way of Cain. We know what that is. The era of Balaam. The rebellion of Korah. This is why we teach our kids the Old Testament. right? This is why we teach children these old stories. Right? There's lessons to be learned here in these Old Testament stories. But they come back in the New Testament. And the way to understand what this means is to know what those stories are. To know what happened in the Old Testament. And then there's some historical symbolism here. These men are hidden reefs in your love feast. You don't probably understand the danger of a hidden reef. Because for us, going about everyday life, what's a hidden reef do to us? Well, nothing. 
We don't see reefs at all here. But in Old Testament times, what was a hidden reef? Why was it dangerous? Anybody know? Anybody think of why a hidden reef would be so dangerous in the Old Testament? So much so that a false teacher would be called a hidden reef? It would damage your ship. The main mode of transportation in those days was by ship. If you were in a ship traveling along and there was a reef that was hidden and you hid it, very likely people would die if it destroyed the ship and you were out in the middle of the sea and you hit a reef that was hidden. Or if your boat got smashed to pieces or it got thrown up against the rocks, it was incredibly dangerous. So we see things like when it says these men are hidden reefs, and we may not understand right away what that means. But thinking about the context, thinking about history and what was going on at the times, we can start to make sense of that phrase, hidden reefs. So sometimes symbolism is symbol that sometimes symbolism, sorry, can be interpreted by using historical information. Sometimes that's all we need to understand the historical information. This historical information to determine the symbol. Okay. Matthew 24. If you got your Bibles, please turn with me to Matthew 24. I got about 20 minutes left. I'm never going to make it through Matthew 24, but we're going to get started. We'll go as far as we can. So I've kind of been rushing along trying to get a review, but I would really like um, your input here, and we're going to look at these things together. The passage, the main passage I want to look at in Matthew 24 is verses 29 through 31. So Matthew 29, sorry, Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31. Dan, do you have that? Matthew 24, 29 through 31. That'll work. Is there anything here that you may not understand? That you read and you go, I don't know what that means. Okay? What does it mean that the sun will be darkened? What does it mean that the moon will not give its light? What does it mean that the stars will fall from the sky? What does it mean by the powers of the heavens will be shaken? Is any of that literal? Or is it symbolic? This is prophetic language, right? So what do you think it is? What about he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet? Is that a literal great trumpet? How about they will gather together his elect from the four winds? From one end of the sky to the other. What does it mean? How do we know? Okay, so now we're going to apply our Bible interpretation. What did we learn last week? What's the first thing we do? You want to learn, determine the meaning of a passage? What's the first thing you should do? Look at the context. Hooray. Let's do that. Matthew 24, verse 1. Um, Cliff, can you read verses 1 through 3 for us? Cliff, sorry. Cliff Middleton. 
One through three. Okay, so the disciples asked Jesus a question. Jesus says, you see the temple? It's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on another. And the disciples come to him and say, when's that going to happen? Okay, what will be the sign of the end of the age? Well, the first thing that I look at when I see that is, what do they mean by the end of the age? Okay, that one's a little trickier. I don't know if we'll have time to get to that. But remember here, the context of what we read in verses 29 and 31 is part of the answer to the disciples' question of when will the temple be destroyed, right? That's the immediate context. Remember that, okay? Isaiah 13. Now what we're going to do is we're going to pick this Matthew 24, 29 through 31. That's our main passage. We're going to start picking it apart. Um, Turn to Isaiah 13. You can keep your finger on Matthew 24 if you want to mark it. We'll come back to it. But let's look up Isaiah 13. So the second thing that we do if we see a symbol or something that we don't understand in the New Testament, what do we do? How do we determine its meaning? Find it in the Old Testament. Right? Okay, so now we're going to find some of these phrases in the Old Testament. Isaiah 13. Um, Jason, Isaiah 13. You have it? Can you read verses 1 through 3? Thank you. And then verses 9 and 10. Wade, do you have those verses 9 and 10 of Isaiah 13? So in Isaiah 13, who is this passage about? Or what? It's about Babylon, right? It's about the city of Babylon. What's going to happen to the city of Babylon according to Isaiah 13? Look at verse 3. What's going to happen to Babylon? What's coming for Babylon? Judgment. Destruction, right? You have it right there. I've called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones, to execute my anger. Okay? The day of the Lord is coming for Babylon. And if you look at verse 13, which we didn't read, 
it says, In Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride, will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. Judgment is coming for Babylon. What's going to happen to Babylon? They're going to be as Sodom and Gomorrah. Now Babylon here is interesting. Babylon can be used symbolically. We see it in Revelation. Babylon is used symbolically here. But it's making it clear that we're not talking about a symbol here of Babylon. We're talking about the literal city of Babylon. Okay, And the reason we know that is partly because of verse 19. In Babylon, the beauty of kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride. Right, The Chaldeans were who lived in Babylon. Right, this is the, Their pride and joy was their city of Babylon. So we're talking about the literal city of Babylon here. Right? And what's going to happen to the city of Babylon? This is something that happened in the past. Okay? This happened to Babylon when it fell to the Medes in 539 B.C. So here we have Isaiah telling us something that's going to happen in 539 B.C. So this happened. Right? Well, what happened to the city of Babylon? What does verse 10 tell us happened to the city of Babylon? Does this language look familiar to you? Hopefully it does. What's going to happen to the city of Babylon? Verse 10. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark and the moon will not shed its light. Okay? Does this language look familiar to you? Hopefully it does. It's starting to look familiar, right? So, what do those phrases mean? The stars of heaven and their constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark. The moon will not shed its light. Do you think that back in Babylon that that literally happened? Okay. That the sun was dark and the moon did not shed its light? Maybe. But what is it telling us here? This is figurative language that's describing the destruction of Babylon. We're talking about the destruction of a city here, right? So that's what these things mean. Okay. Go to Isaiah 34. Stick with Isaiah for now. As you turn there, notice the phrase in Isaiah that says, The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. The passage in Matthew we read said, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Those are word for word. That's NAS translation. The two two passages compared together says, Isaiah says, The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. And Matthew says, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. Almost identical. So Isaiah 34 I'm looking, uh, let's see. Quentin, can you read verses 1 through 4 of Isaiah 34?
Okay, hopefully there's some language in there that sounds familiar to you, despite all the imagery that's quite disgusting. But here we have some phrases here that you should recognize. Okay, the first thing I'm going to ask you is, who is this about? Who are we reading about here in Isaiah 34? I'll give you a hint, we didn't read it. Well, look at, look at the passage in Isaiah 34. Who are we reading about? It does say, and all you have to do is go one verse beyond what I told Quentin to read and you can find it. <laughs> Who are we reading about? Edom. So we're reading about a prophecy about Edom, and it's in verse 6, too, where it says, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made with fat, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of the kidneys of rams. For the Lord has, set, has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. So this passage in Isaiah 34 is talking about the land of Edom. Okay, Judgment is coming upon Edom. But what's the phrasing that Isaiah uses to describe the destruction of Edom that's going to come? Verse 4. And the host of heaven will wear away, and the sky will be rolled up like a scroll. This passage is obviously about Edom. Okay, This is about the land of Edom and the destruction of Edom. Do you think back when Edom was destroyed, the sky literally rolled up like a scroll? So then why, when we read in the New Testament, that the sky will be rolled up like a scroll, do people think that one day they're going to go outside and they're going to see the sky rolling up? This is figurative language. What does this figurative language that the sky will be rolled up like a scroll mean? What are we talking about here? Al? We're actually, we're talking about the end of Edom right here. We're talking about the destruction of a nation, right? Look at the context of the passage. And if you look at the context of other things, this doesn't, there's, no, there's no indication here that we're talking about the end of the world. The context here is verse 5 and 6. Behold, it shall descend for judgment upon Edom and upon the people who have devoted to destruction. Okay, For the Lord has a sacrifice in Basra and a great slaughter in the land of Edom. This is Isaiah talking about the destruction of what's going to happen in Edom. Just like the previous passage was about the destruction of what was going to happen in Babylon. Okay? But we'll keep going here. Um, go to Joel. The book of Joel, chapter 2. Joel chapter 2, we'll look at verses 1 and 2 first. Al, do you have that? 
I think you have Job. I think you have Job. Joel, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> it's all right. Joel, the prophet Joel. Joel chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Okay, who in Joel are we talking about? Who's being discussed here in Joel? Look at the very first verse, the very first phrase. Who are we talking about? Zion, right? So that's Israel. We're talking about Israel and the next phrase or the next words in there in in verse 1. Let all the inhabitants of the land. Who are the inhabitants of the land? Right? Talking about the promised land. The inhabitants of the promised land. Okay? The inhabitants of the land are Israel. Blow a trumpet in Zion. All the inhabitants of the land. We're talking about Israel here. Right? So here the topic is Israel. We're discussing Israel. This is the context. What do we get when we get to verses 10 and 11? Okay? I'll read them for you. Joel 2 Verses 10 and 11 says, Before them the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord utters his voice before his army. His camp is indeed very great. For mighty is the one who carries out his word. The day of the Lord is indeed great and very awesome, and who can endure it? Another thing that I've forgotten to point out to you, each of these passages are talking about the day of the Lord. Did you notice that? Isaiah 13, verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. Isaiah 34, there's a day of the Lord. Joel 2, the day of the Lord is coming in verse 1. And then it comes again in verse 12. The day of the Lord is coming. Each of these judgments on nations is described as a day of the Lord. Okay? Something to notice when you're reading the New Testament and it comes about the day of the Lord. Okay? Here we have an Old Testament. We've already read three different times when the day of the Lord has described the destruction of a nation. Okay? In Isaiah 13, or sorry, in Joel 2, Joel 2, Joel is speaking about God's judgment on the land, on the land of Israel, of Judah, when a plague of drought and locust overtook them. And if you read the rest of that passage, you can see it's clearly about Israel. Okay, this is judgment coming on Israel. And here we have about an event that happened in the past being said, the earth quakes, the heavens tremble, the sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will lose their brightness. That imagery is being used to describe a famine. Okay? A famine and a drought and a plague of locusts that's about to come on them. But these things were so severe that the way God describes them as what they're going to happen is 
The sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars will lose their brightness. Do you see that? We'll keep up. I can't keep going. I'm out of time. (laughs) Okay, but as some of these passages like we went through, I have them written in your notes here. They're on the back side. Um, But we went Isaiah 13, Isaiah 34, Joel 2, Amos 8. Oh, Amos 8 is the one that's coming up next. We haven't got there yet. But these things, if you want, spend your time looking at those. I just read a few of the verses that pertain to what we were looking at, but you can read those in detail and you can read the context around those. And you'll see the context is about the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of Edom or the destruction of Israel. Or the plague that, that one in Joel was about the, the plague on Israel. And you'll see those things coming up and you can read the context. I didn't take the time to read all the verses around them, but you'll see it. Um, and then we'll start covering more of these verses next week. Um, but I am out of time. So let's pray and then we can go. Dear Lord, I pray that you would please open, your, open our eyes to your word. Help us to understand what you are telling us in your word. Help us to understand the things that are more difficult to understand and the symbolism that you've put in there. You gave us these verses and you gave us your word for our instruction. As Paul says in Romans, they are for our benefit. Help us to understand it and help it to be of our benefit. Lord, watch over us today. Uh, May our worship be pleasing to you. May we learn more from your word and be sanctified through it. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.